Have you ever been a victim of an overreaction? <laughs> Guys, those of you who are married, just track with me, see if this ever happened to you. There have been a few times in my life where I hear, Quit! Quit! I run into the kitchen expecting to find an axe murderer. I ask my sweet wife, what is wrong? She says, there's a spider. <laughs> How big is this spider? Oh, it's huge. Am I the only person this has ever happened to? The spider's that big. <laughs> you know, you talk about guys telling their fishing stories. Oh man, I caught this fish. It was this big. Spider stories. It's this big. It's this big, right? Guys, you ever been driving along the road? Slamming on the brake. I'm expecting a semi-truck in the lane. What? Macy's is having another one-day sale. <laughs> this ever happened to you? <laughs> Ladies, you ever been in the car? I know this happened to my wife. It's like an episode of Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. Somebody cuts you off. All of a sudden, your husband turns into a NASCAR driver. (laughs) He says some things that probably shouldn't be repeated in church. You ever overreact when your kids get under your skin? You ever overreact to uh, something you've seen on social media? You ever overreact to anything in your life? You ever been a victim of overreaction? I'm sure we all have, right? That kind of goes with human nature. There are times that we overreact, tend to overreact. And, and today, as we, as we look at this incredible history surrounding Queen Esther, we're gonna see something that is certainly an overreaction, but but, but to say that it's an overreaction doesn't really do it justice. When we last talked about Esther, we, we, we looked at an unlikely queen, uh, a woman who was uh, in the midst of the Persian empire and, and she's a, a Jewish girl, a, a, a Jewish young woman. And, and, and she found herself in the midst of Miss Persia competition. <laughs> King Xerxes was the, king of Persia, the Persian empire followed the Babylonian empire. And the Babylonian empire, if you remember, had taken the Jewish people into captivity. They were dispersed and scattered. The Jews were all throughout the Babylonian empire. And then the Persians came and they conquered the Babylonians. And now the Persians are ruling. They're ruling over the Jewish people. They're ruling over a huge section of the, of the known world at the time. And, and King Xerxes has a queen named Vashti and he tries to show her off in a very inappropriate fashion. She will not humiliate herself by coming out and parading herself around to, to the king and all of, his, all of his governors. And so they get rid of the queen. And now the king is looking for another queen. He has a, a, a Miss Persia pageant. And remember, about 400 young women, all beautiful, who were brought into the fortress at Susa. That's where the king was residing at the time. And, and there's one woman who was most beautiful of them all, the fairest of them all. Her name was Esther. Esther wins the favor of the, of the king and she is elevated to the place of queen. But we're told, we were told at the very end of our, of our time together last week that she was hiding the fact that she was of Jewish descent. This people group 
that were scattered and dispersed across the Persian Empire and that really were without identity. And so she, at the behest, remember, of her family member, Mordecai, did not disclose that she was a, a Jewish woman and did not disclose the fact that Mordecai was not a Jewish man. And, and they're both in Susa. And, and, we, and we saw how God had given his favor to Esther in significant ways, one of which was Mordecai learning of a plot to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, she tells the king, his life is spared and Esther is honored. And that's kind of where we left off the story. And we saw how God is working and moving behind the scenes of this incredible story. And he's positioned this this young girl and her family member there in Susa, there during the reign of Xerxes, there during the, 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 the reign of this powerful empire. We see Esther and Mordecai strategically placed. And what happens next cannot just be characterized as an overreaction. It's much more pronounced than that. Because during these early years of Esther's time as the queen, there's a man in the empire named Haman. And Haman is promoted to the prime minister, to to be kind of second in command over all of the Persian empire. Haman is a man who's very arrogant, as we will see, very prideful. Haman desired the the accolades that he received. He treasured more than anything else in his life, his prominence and his position within the Persian empire. And, And Haman accomplishes this incredible feat that he is elevated to basically be the prime minister of the kingdom of Persia. And so when Haman was walking around town, people would bow and they would pay homage to him. They would bow the knee and they would treat him almost as a God. And one day Haman's walking around and he comes across Mordecai, Esther's cousin, and Mordecai as a God-fearing Jew does not bow the knee to any man. And so Haman walks past and everyone bows the knee except this man named Mordecai. And Haman is so arrogant that he becomes incensed that this one man will not bow the knee. But here's the overreaction. (laughs) He goes to the king and he says, king, We got some problems here in the empire. We've got people who are disrespectful. We got people that will not bow down or pay homage. We have people here who have their own laws and their own customs, and they will not submit to you or to me. And we need to not just abolish this guy named Mordecai. We need to get rid of the entire ethnic group. Again, overreaction doesn't quite do this justice, does it? Let me show you what happens here in Esther 3, verses 5 and 6. Let me just show this to you. He said, said, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout King Xerxes' kingdom. Isn't that crazy? And so Haman goes to the king and he says, king, here's the deal. We've got this whole race of people in the empire. Again, they have their own laws and their own customs. They will not bow down and pay homage to you or to me. We need to abolish them all. We'll we'll, we'll kill every single one of them, man, woman, boy, and child. We will take their property and their assets. He says, king, I will bring to you 
It's crazy if you read through chapter three here. Uh, Haman says to King Xerxes, he says, I will bring to you over 300 tons of silver. Well, the king doesn't really care. So he's like, all right, man, that sounds good. If you can pad the treasury and get rid of these people who are a nuisance, do it. That's how cold and callous these people were, the Persians. They were ruthless. And so Haman gets King Xerxes to sign a decree that's going out to all of the governors and all of the provinces that says on such and such date, the Jewish people are to be terminated, killed, abolished, wiped off the face of the earth. Isn't that crazy? The, the decree is signed. The king's ring is given to Haman. It's pressed into the wax. It has his authoritative seal. And now the news is spreading. The mandate is being distributed to all of the appropriate officials. Couriers are going throughout the empire and delivering this word. May I just kind of summarize it in this way? In a very real sense, Haman is the first Hitler. I mean, it may seem crazy to us that this would happen, but it hasn't been that long ago. It happened again. But this is the first time something like this happened where one man's trying to lead to the abolishing of the entire Jewish race. And now, as Mordecai learns of this, he is greatly perplexed, to put it mildly. Mordecai knows that he is in danger and he knows that Esther is in danger, even though she has not yet disclosed to anyone that she is a Jewish woman. And so we're gonna pick up the narrative here in chapter four of the book of Esther, beginning in verse eight. Let's just look together at what happens as Mordecai comes to grips with this incredible decree that has gone out that within just a matter of weeks, he and all the Jewish people are to be killed. Let's pick it up in verse eight of Esther chapter four. Now, Mordecai gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa. He gave this, by the way, to the, the chief eunuch that was connected to Esther. And, and this order, of course, was about the destruction of the Jews so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her and command her to approach the king, implore his favor and plead with him personally for her people. And half that came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. So let me pause there quickly. Basically, Mordecai has the decree, gets a copy of the decree, he gives it to Esther. He sends it through, through this one that they're connected with and it goes to Esther. And he, he says, like, you gotta get this to Esther. Esther has to know what is coming down the pike here. And she's in a position to where she can intercede before the king. Remember, she's already spared the king's life once. Maybe he'll listen to her. So he's pressing Esther to act. All right, now look what happens next, verse 10. So Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, well, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard who has not been summoned. In other words, she says, everybody in the whole kingdom knows if you try to approach the king without an invitation, watch this, the death penalty is what you get unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. Now, this is key. She says, I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. And Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. So this guy by the name of Hatak comes to Esther on behalf of Mordecai. 
shows Esther the decree, says, listen, Esther, the Jewish people are about to be destroyed. You've gotta go. You gotta go and you gotta intercede on behalf of your people to the king. Esther's response is, hey, listen, I haven't seen the king in 30 days. And everybody in the entire kingdom knows that you cannot approach the king in the inner courtyard without an invitation. If you just kind of show up one day to, 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 like, to see the king, you kind of knock on the door, you walk in where he is and you don't have an invitation, either he extends the golden scepter to you by which he's sparing your life and allowing you to come and to ask for your request, or if he doesn't, then you will be taken and you will be killed. You don't approach the king without an invitation. That's where she leaves it. She's like, hey, I, I get it. I, I, I don't like the decree any more than you do kind of thing, but I, I, what do you want me to do about it? No, nobody can approach the king. I don't have an invitation. And then this is kind of the, the height of the book, what happens next, the height of this history, what, what happens next. Check this out, verse 13. So Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. Mordecai's like, all right, I hear you. Now, now go tell Esther this. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, Esther, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And so Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me and don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. And after that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Now they're in quite a dilemma. It was one thing that Mordecai learned of a, of an assassination plot against King Xerxes that he was able to tell Esther about. And she was able then to tell the king and spare his life. This one involves directly Esther and Mordecai in the entire Jewish race. And now Esther's in a place again where, where she may have the opportunity to intercede this time for her own life and the lives of all of her brothers and sisters in the Jewish race, but, but she doesn't have an audience with the king at this time. Now she's at risk of her own life if she tries to go to the king without an invitation, without his favor, and, and she's in a quandary. She doesn't know what to do. And, and there's a message here for you and me that is, that is critically important even for us today. This applies to you and me today, namely this. Listen, you cannot have peace and prosperity without first risking the power of the palace. When it comes to our lives, our futures, not, not in terms of our temporal futures, in terms of our eternal futures. Listen to me very carefully. You cannot have everlasting, true peace and prosperity without first being willing to risk the power of the palace. This is Esther's dilemma. In order for her to save herself and her people, she has to risk her own life and the power of the palace. She knows the risk. But listen to Mordecai's message. Mordecai is saying, if you don't risk the palace, you risk everything. 
Mordecai's words here are so true. He's saying, listen, Esther, you think foolishly that, that just because no one's discovered you as a Jewish woman now, that somehow that's gonna persist forever. He's like, I'm here to tell you it's not gonna persist forever. At some point, somebody's gonna find out and you will perish with your people. God's gonna do the saving and the sparing. God's gonna preserve a remnant, even if this decree is allowed to be enacted. But I'm telling you, Esther, you won't survive it any more than I will survive it. Listen to what he's saying. If you aren't willing to risk the palace, you will risk and lose everything. That's a great word for us when we think about what you and I call the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus. How do we come to this salvation? How do we come to this gospel? How do we receive forgiveness of sins and the guarantee and the hope of eternal life? Is it not true that we first have to be willing to risk everything so that we might gain everything? You cannot have true peace and prosperity without first risking the power of the palace. There are some takeaways here I want you to see. First of all, our society, like the Persian society, is affluent but apathetic. You and I live in a society where we are immensely blessed. Do you understand this? We are immensely blessed. When you look at the average American household income and you compare it not just to that in the world today, but that throughout the history of the world, you quickly learn that even the most average among us, even the, the most ordinary among us are among the most wealthy who have ever walked the face of the earth. We are a people who are incredibly blessed. We are a people who are incredibly affluent. We don't ask the question, when will we eat? We ask the question, when will we eat again? <laughs> we don't deal with things like famines in America. We don't really know what it means to live in a society, in a culture with significant want or need. Like most people, even in the world today, and that's not reason for guilt or shame. Listen, it is reason for thanksgiving. It is reason to give glory to God and understand that he has blessed us for a purpose. And like the Persian culture, listen, the American culture is affluent. We are a blessed people, but we are seeing increasingly that most people are apathetic toward the Lord toward spiritual things, toward eternal truths, toward the, the significance and the importance of, of godly truth and godly principles. And listen to me very, very carefully. There are many even so-called Christ followers who become so enamored with the palace and with the privilege and with the affluence that they dare not risk it for the cause of Jesus. And I wanna be very, very clear to you, Bell Shoals. God has called us to live for him with everything. He has given everything that we might have everything. And we cannot be a people who are so enamored with the palace that we're not willing to risk the temporal things that we enjoy. The material blessings, the influence, the positions that we hold, no, no. 
If you're not willing to risk your influence, your wealth, your positions for the cause of Christ, then these things have already destroyed you. Because as Christ followers, we understand that our self-worth is not determined by our net worth. Our value, our identity, as we saw last week, is tied not to something inside the palace, but someone outside the palace. And this is Mordecai's word to Esther. Don't think for a moment that you will escape the fate of the Jewish people just because you're inside the palace. If you're not willing to risk the palace, then you will risk and lose everything. This is the Christian gospel. May I remind you what Jesus said in Luke 14? If you're new to Christianity, this might come as a shock. Let me explain to you what Jesus meant here, but let me just... Let me just remind you of what he said. Luke 14, 25, now great crowds were traveling with Jesus. Of course they were. They were all interested in him healing the sick and casting out demons and performing miracle after miracle after miracle. Jesus drew a great crowd. And so he turned to them and he said, hey, listen, you wanna follow me? Let me, let me, let me break this down what this looks like. Okay? Now that's a loose paraphrase of the Greek here, okay? But just go with me. Look, look what Jesus says. He says, if anyone comes to me, you wanna follow me? Here's what it looks like. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now that's a hard word, isn't it? You say, now is Jesus telling me I have to hate the people that are closest to me in my life? Actually, no, he's not saying that. He's using a Jewish teaching tool of comparison. By comparison, our love for Jesus, our faithfulness to Jesus, our devotion to Jesus is so great that in comparison to our allegiance, loyalty, love, and faithfulness to others, it looks like hatred. He's not saying literally you hate those who are close to you in your life. He's saying, but if you really wanna follow me, love me, serve me, then by comparison, it will look like you hate others in your life. Jesus is using a, a hyperbole here to make a point that following him isn't just about getting the privileges of the palace. It's not just about making yourself feel better. It's not just about adopting some version of Christianity where you just put a little Christian spin on the American dream and call yourself good. That's not the gospel. The gospel is seeing yourself as a man or a woman in desperate need of God's love and forgiveness. Seeing yourself on a trajectory of a Christless eternity, spending forever and ever and ever and ever in torment separated from God, but then beholding the glory of God to send his son to take the penalty of your sin and rebellion upon himself, to go to his cross and to die for you in your place and to be resurrected from the dead to conquer sin and death and hell so that when you put your faith in Jesus and you humbly ask for his forgiveness and you commit to live for him forever, he saves you, he forgives you, he adopts you, he restores you, he clothes you with his righteousness and you have a hope for all eternity, a hope that comes outside the palace. <laughs> outside the palace. You say, what if I have to give up something to follow Jesus? Yes, you're not giving it up. 
What if it costs me a little bit being generous? And what if it costs me time and energy? What if in my profession, by taking a stand for what's right and what's godly and what's good, what if it costs me my reputation? What if? Listen to Mordecai. If you aren't willing to risk the palace, then you risk everything. And I fear that there are many people in our society who gauge acceptance by their affluence. And that's not how we come to God. Because there are many people who are apathetic truly to the things of God. And, and the only way we get over that is to understand that our hope lies not inside the palace, but outside the palace. And I'm gonna say this one more time that the gospel, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a little Christian spin on the American dream. It is all out warfare against the powers and the principalities that seek to keep you away from eternity with God. It is war. That's why Jim Elliott, the great missionary to South America said this, a man, by the way, who lost his own life serving Jesus, Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You cannot have true and lasting peace and prosperity without first risking the power of the palace. <laughs> and for those of us living in a society with affluence, but also apathy, we need to be shaken by the urgency of this gospel. Secondly, let me encourage you with this. Here's how we shake out of this apathy. We're reminded that God is in complete control over human chaos. I wanna reiterate this one more time. Esther is the only book of the Bible where God is not named, but we see God is working. He is the hidden hero of the book. He is the hidden hero of your life. God is in complete control over human chaos. He's in complete control over the chaos of your job, the chaos of your family, He's in complete control over the chaos of our culture. God's in complete control over the chaos of a presidential election. God is in complete control over all human chaos. He always has been, he always will be. That's why Mordecai says to Esther, yes, that's why Mordecai says to Esther, don't miss this. Esther, as hard as Haman tries, he will not destroy the Jewish race. These are God's people. No, 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 no. Esther, look back through the history of our great people. Go back to the time of Moses. Go, go, go back. Go back to see how miraculously God's delivered his people time and time and time again. I love what Mordecai says. Esther, first of all, you're gonna be willing to risk the palace or you'll lose everything. And then secondly, Esther, because God is gonna preserve his people. He's not gonna allow this guy named Haman to succeed. He didn't allow Hitler to succeed. He's never gonna allow anyone to succeed in overcoming his purpose through his people. Listen, I love what Mordecai says. God's gonna preserve his people. God is going to work in such a profound way that, that, that a remnant will be restored, but you won't be a part of it if you don't faithfully serve. What is Mordecai saying? 
that our God is in complete control over human chaos. I told you last week, I remind you again, there is no coincidence with our God, only providence. Now, can I give you a good word? Our God has strategically placed you right where you live, right where you work, right where you serve to be an influencer for his kingdom and his causes. Do you believe that? May I point out to you today that Esther is a beautiful example of how God uses men and women who are not called to full-time Christian ministry. Maybe you walk in these doors today thinking, you know what? Our pastor and our staff and the missionaries that we support, these are the ones that have to make ministry happen through Bell Shoals. I beg to differ. We're a rather, relatively small group when you look at the scope of Bell Shoals. You are the ones who are more on the front lines of gospel engagement than all, in our culture than anybody else in full-time ministry or missions who are part of Bell Shoals. The reach of the thousands of you who are all throughout West Central Florida and beyond every single day is a reach that God intends to use for his glory. The reach is far greater through all of us collectively than just a few of us who are called to full-time Christian ministry individually or in, in, in our small group. Listen, we see through Esther and Mordecai that God uses people, all people for his glory. He uses full-time ministers and missionaries, but he also uses people who find themselves in unique secular roles, people in politics and medicine and business and education. I'm grateful for the fact that God uses a diversity of people like Ezra, who was a minister, Nehemiah, who was a lay person, a businessman, if you will, Esther, who was royalty. You have male and female, spiritual and secular. God uses all of his people to accomplish all of his purposes. I want you to know wherever you live, wherever you work, whatever you do, day in and day out, wherever you go to school, listen to me, students, God has a design for you in your life and he's strategically placed you to use you. He's in complete control of all of your circumstances. He's in complete control of even where you dwell. Acts 17 reminds us of this. And we see how important it is here in Esther for believers to be everywhere. We need the influence of godly people in strategic places of business, politics, medicine, education, and ministry. And I am grateful for the men and women of Bell Shoals who are faithfully making an impact all across the country and around the world. Leaning into the providence of our great God in his placement and in his purpose. Listen to Mordecai. First of all, he wants us to be reminded of the fact, if you're not willing to risk the palace, you will risk it all. And secondly, we see here a deep-seated confidence that God is in control and God is working and God is moving. And I'm telling you, Bell Shoals, since 1961, that is exactly what has happened here. Our story is not ultimately the story of any pastor, any staff member, or any member. The only way you can explain how Bell Shoals has been a blessed, incredible, impactful group of people is through the glory and the grace and the power of God. That's how you explain it. That's how you explain it. And we're gonna to continue to be a people leaning into the providence of God, trusting him in every circumstance and being used by him in every opportunity, understanding that we are all strategically placed for such a time as this. And then finally, 
In order to really accomplish this individually, collectively, I wanna remind us that our devotion then must precede our duty. What do we see here in this incredible history of Esther? Well, we see a society in the Persian culture that's affluent but apathetic toward the things of God. We see if you don't risk the palace, you risk everything. We see though that we have a God who is in complete control over human chaos. He has a plan, he has a purpose, he's using his people. And then how are his people coming to him and how are his people here being used by him? First of all, it's through devotion, even ahead of duty. Where do we see this? Well, in the very last part of chapter four, Esther, it finally hits her, right? It finally hits her. I gotta act. I'm gonna have to go to the king. I'm gonna have to go to the king. I hope you'll be back with us next week so we're gonna look at this incredible account when she goes to the king. But she, she gets it. I gotta go to the king. I gotta risk my own life. I gotta risk the palace or I'll lose it all. And so, and so she sends back to Mordecai and she says, three days I need you to fast. I want you to get with all of our Jewish brothers and sisters throughout the entire uh, city throughout the entire fortress. I, I, I want all of us to fast. I'm gonna do it. Those who serve me are going to do it. We're all gonna fast three days. And she said, three days and three nights. She said, we need to seek the face of God. Now the Corey Abney plan would have been, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna come up with a game plan here. I'm gonna get to the king. I'm gonna find a little opening in the schedule and we're gonna go. Anybody else like that? We're doers, aren't we? We're go-getters. Sometimes to our own peril. (laughs) Because the Lord delights most, not in our duty, but in our devotion. And I love the fact that before Esther acts, she prays. She seeks the face of God. She seeks his wisdom and his timing. And I just want to remind us that when we are overwhelmed, we must run to the one who overcomes. And sometimes that means spending time in prayer, time in the word, time with other believers, seeking their counsel, their encouragement, not being impulsive. I love the fact that here Esther understands the gravity of the situation And the fact that if she's gonna triumph and she's gonna live, frankly, it's gonna have to be through the power of God. You know what? That's always the case. (laughs) In small things and big things, we are a people solely dependent upon the power and the grace of God. And I wanna encourage you today, maybe you're facing something here this morning, a challenge, an obstacle, some form of your own personal chaos, Maybe you're in a a field of work where you're surrounded by people who are constantly trying to pull you into ungodliness and maybe you're in a strategic role in a strategic place and you feel the pressure to honor the Lord and you need his wisdom and his guidance on a regular basis. Maybe you're overwhelmed right now. Maybe you're one of our incredible teachers or you serve in our our, our school system and and you're overwhelmed by a little bit of the chaos right now. Whatever it is, may I just encourage you before before you, you, you draft up a battle plan of attack for this upcoming week, can I encourage you to take a few minutes today and pray. Seek the Lord. Remember, your devotion is more important than your duty. 
and understand that God will use you and God will use us collectively as we draw the hearts and lives of those around us to himself in such a way that they see their desperate need for him too. And that's what we're trying to do. Man, I don't know. A week and a half or so ago, we had the opportunity, a little over a week ago, to go down to Palm River. Our Palm River campus sits in close proximity to the Palm River Elementary School. We had the opportunity to go down there as a faith family. A few of us did, actually a large number of us. And we, we had the opportunity to walk that school and, and pray. Now, can I just tell you again, for some of us who are type A go-getters, man, like that's not the immediate plan of attack. But our campus pastor at Palm River Campus, Kenny Bass, he met with the principal over at Palm River Elementary. This is her first principalship, first time she's ever been a principal. Pastor Kenny reached out to her. He said, hey, listen, Bell Shoals wants to be a blessing to our community. Bell Shoals wants to be an encouragement right now during this crazy season. How can, how can we be a blessing to you, Palm River Elementary? And this young principal, she said to Pastor Kenny, she said, I know what I need you to do. She said, you, get, you tell all your people at Bell Shoals, you come and pray. I think Pastor Kenny's a little taken aback by that. I'm gonna be honest with you. Had she said that to me, I'd be like, no, 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 I'm talking about, man, well, I can bring, we can bring people, we can come clean, we can bring gifts to your teachers, we can bring lunch. Listen, we're Baptists, we know how to bring food. She said, I don't need any of that. She said, I want you to come and I want you to pray. She said, this school's in a tough area. This is my first go-round as a principal. We need the Lord. We have children who need the Lord. We have children in broken homes that need the Lord. They need to know the love of a father. She said, I just need you to get a bunch of people and come and pray. Pastor Kenny, call me. Yes, we celebrate that. Yes. <laughs> Pastor Kenny called me. He said, hey, I just talked to the principal of Palm River. I said, what do y'all need? She said, she needs us to pray. So we can do that. And so we, man, we had a bunch of people come down to Palmer Elementary a little over a week ago and we prayed. And we had the opportunity to hear from the principal and um, man, what she said just brought tears to all of our eyes. It was incredible. She was overwhelmed by the grace of God, the encouragement of God, the provision of God through you, through Bell Shoals. And I want you to see just, a, just a, a brief clip of what that day looked like. And I want you to hear from her what she said that day and then see how it dovetails so perfectly into this situation of Esther. Let's watch this together. I go in that room with her brain. Okay, this is Ms. Dana, one of our teachers. I asked uh, Principal McClooney, I said, what's the first thing? What can we do for you to help you as a school? And she knocked me down on the ground immediately <laughs> with what she responded. She said, I need prayer over my school. Amen. Amen. When Pastor King came this summer, and he asked what I needed. And I said, I want prayer. I didn't think it was gonna be this many people. <laughs> I was overwhelmed when I pulled around the corner and saw the parking lot already full with 15 minutes early. And God met expectations to the point of tears when I walked out in the corner. And, uh, and to hear the principal 
say that she months ago, years ago, had said my first principalship I want to dedicate to you and we got the privilege as a church of Bell Shoals to be a part of that. Like as I was going through that journey of wanting to become a prince, well, I said, God, I want to honor you with my principalship. So I said, the school that I get, God, I know it's going to be what you have for me and I want to dedicate it back to you. And I want to make sure that when people step on this campus, they know that the Spirit of God is a living God. That He's true, that He's real. If they need deliverance, they will feel that the Holy Spirit is here. I'm so grateful that God chose me for a time such as this. So, I I'm so grateful and my heart is so full. I believe that God has chosen Principal McClooney down at Palm River Elementary School, just as she said, for such a time as this. And I had a few of our members ask me when we were walking those grounds and we were praying for those students and those teachers. I had a few of our members say, Pastor, does she not realize what she's risking by having us here? Pastor, does she not know that we live in Hillsborough County? Pastor, do you know if she's gonna get in trouble for this? And you know what I kept thinking? If you don't risk the palace, you risk everything. She said, I need you to pray. And I'm grateful for the reminder that even in a world sometimes it's so hostile to the things of God, the Lord is in complete control and he's using a people who is devoted to him. He's using. And he's using you, Bell Shoals. He's used you here in West Central Florida since 1961. He's using us. Let's continue to be a people who are positioned to serve with devotion and passion and commitment, the King of kings and the Lord of lords for such a time as this.